Um, just so you know, there's a really cool thing that's happening in our church body, and that is that they're doing a survey, the, the, the local Engage team is doing a survey of all the wonderful places you guys work and live and volunteer in the city. It's somewhat tied to all the stuff we have to do um, in terms of allocating funds and, and figuring out what we're going to concentrate on, but it's also just to receive from you all the wonderful places that you give your life to. Um, and so when we're asking questions like, hey, I think we, wanna, we want you all to volunteer towards X, we're like, well, but now we know that 30 people in our church already volunteer there, and we should definitely give uh, contacts and ability to connect with those things. So I think that comes out today, um, and I'd love for you to fill that survey out. Um, it comes out tomorrow morning. There you go. Like I said, today, tomorrow, mañana, whatever. All right, so, um, so yes, give yourself to that if you can. We, we've been in a, a sermon series about foundations, foundations of, of everything, foundations of life with God, foundations with work and rest, uh, sex and gender. And a couple weeks ago, we started into foundations of sin and brokenness and temptation. And today, we're going to talk about guilt which is a fun topic. Last week, um, I was in Albuquerque, um, and Eric and I were there, and it was a beautiful time, a time that I, I've tried to explain why it was so kingdom important, but I've never had, I don't have the words for it yet, but we were, um, we were there with Justin, who will be our new pastor, and with their family, and Justin and Danette are third-generation Burqueños, which is what they call people from Albuquerque. And there are a couple things that just were amazing. Their church, the community, his life there. Um, and green and chili, green and red chili peppers, which are epic. Um, and you should be so proud of Eric because he went in whole hog all day. He nailed it. He, he ate everything. And I was very proud of him, though I did not have his courage. Um, anyway, so, but when you think about Albuquerque, there's, a, there's this TV show that happened based in Albuquerque called Breaking Bad, which um, some of my friends watched. And um, it is, it's a tough thing, as I've heard from my friends, that it's a tough Thing to watch, but it's epic in its storytelling. It's kind of like The Wire or um, Mad Men or something like that, which all the, my other friends told me about, um, that there's this kind of reality that um, uh, of an anti-hero and a hero, and what do you deal with, how do you deal with things like guilt and shame? Um, the, the, the creator of that uh, series, Vince Gilligan, um, talks about his own philosophy of life slash religious perspective. And he's, he says, my wife said this one time, and I think that's where I am. And that is this. I want to believe there is a heaven, but I can't not believe that there's a hell. And if you've watched any of um, aforementioned Breaking Bad, then you know what's exploring the realities of guilt even when 
hard realities come to somebody and what, what responsibilities there are. There's this harrowing scene in season four that a friend told me about um, that, uh, where, where Jesse Pinkman, who is the dealer's right-hand man, um, is going to a Narcotics Anonymous meeting. And um, he's been sporadically attending mostly to sell his goods. But he had just, looking around the room for ages, killed a man. The first one he would. And he's distraught and trying to deal with his guilt. And he had told nobody of the murder except for his boss. So he admits to this murder by obscuring the fact that he killed a dog kids, he did not kill a dog. The group leader, um, which is the NA meetings group leader, talks about, uh, well, speaks of a kind of mantra in the 12 steps. He says, so the truth is we can't change the past. What's done is done. We got to own our own actions, but putting yourselves on trial, putting ourselves on trial um, as our own judge, jury, and executioner is not the answer. It starts to heighten up in this scene and Jesse starts to be undone by his guilt. And the insufficiency of that answer or such a view. And he tells the group, I looked the dog straight in the eye before I did it. Fellow members were in the group couldn't handle the guilt and the and the and the and the feelings of guilt that were around him. They start to try to console him and saying, "Well, he must have been suffering. It was probably an act of kindness." And Jesse refuses to be placated by any of these things, and he says, "He didn't bite anyone. He was just a problem dog that I needed to deal with." Anger starts to escalate in the group, and they're wondering why, why would you, what kind of person does this? A dog for no reason. And the group leader attempts to reassert authority and, 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 and bring some peace to the cacophony, and he says, We're not here to sit in judgment. And that's what breaks Jesse veins coming out of his head in the scene. Why not? Why not sit in judgment? The thing's is, thing is, if you just do stuff and nothing happens, what does it all mean? What's the point? This whole thing is about self-acceptance? Counselor chimes in and says, that's a start. He's like, so no matter what I do, Hooray for me, because I'm such a good guy. It's all good. No matter how many dogs I kill. Kids, he didn't kill any dogs. What I need to do is just an inventory and accept it. It's an incredibly powerful scene. And I retell this to you because it overlaps with our passage today, which is what do we do with our guilt? What do we do with that internal angst and frustration or inability to go somewhere with it? 
when Genesis 3 starts, it, it, it reveals to us, as I said a couple weeks ago, our practice and our, uh, and our actual disobedience, uh, that, that, that those realities are original to us after the fall, that we all participate in this. Our lust to be like God, our desire to taste that forbidden fruit, to live independently from the God who made us and loves us and gives us His good law, His good loving law. And guilt enters in the world through our first parents, but we have been holding up the family tradition for a long time. Guilt, it's simple in in some really important ways. Did you do it or did you not? Are you responsible for the results of what happened? What portion of it is yours that you must own? Are you culpable for what happened? Are you at fault or in the wrong? That part may not be easy, but it's simple. But guilt is also complex. What do you do with it? And more importantly, in our passage and in our lives, what does God do with it? Guilt and the feelings of guilt get us all messed up on the insides, right? But it also gets messed up with others and God. Neil Planiga, an amazing um, academic, but also pastoral and wonderful in so many ways, he says, Adam and Eve knew they were naked, right? They, they, for the first time ever in their lives, they realized this thing. And they could not stand the scrutiny. It's not just because their uh, eyes might have gazed southward, he says, dipped southward, he says, but it's also that they had trouble looking at each other in the eyes. That's what guilt does. That's what shame does. But it wasn't just looking at each other in the eyes. It was looking God in the eyes. Because every time that there is guilt, there is, there is this destructive shame lurking behind it. And we get stuck. And the beauty of our passage today is that we get stuck and we can explore those things, but God does not get stuck. He moves towards us. Even when we run and hide, He seeks. I want to talk a little bit about what we do with our guilt and our shame. We run and hide in our guilt and shame. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. That's Yahweh Elohim. That's the personal God. And they hid among the trees of the garden. They hid in shame. They run away. But here's the thing, the guilt of the circumstance, like we did it or not do it, that doesn't change at all. But they're trying to avoid dealing with that reality. There's a difference between owning your guilt and hiding and running in shame. Because actually the experience of guilt is a gift. It can be a gift. It's what the scene in Breaking Bad is all about. It explores the question of, of what do we do with that? Jesse, even though he's hiding in some sense, is trying to get out the reality of his culpability to the group so that they can deal with that. 
Guilt cuts to the heart with truth, and when it comes from God, truth and love. And it, we can own our own folly and rebellion. It's, it, it frees us to be clear about what we've done. My bad was my mistake. It was my decision, and there's agency and beauty in owning the reality of those things. But shame is just dull and formless. It avoids what we have done. It shifts from, I, I failed, to, I'm an abject failure. It shifts to, I need forgiveness, to, I have done the unforgivable thing. That's what shame does. Guilt lives in the light. Shame lives in the dark. When you're running from God and guilt, you will always run headlong into shame. Y'all, I talk to you about this stuff because I have great experience in it. If you've known me well enough to have some conversations here or there, you know that shame is my Linus blanket. I carry it around all the daggum time, and sometimes it actually warms me. Sometimes I can cover my head with it. But it's got smallpox and bedbugs in it. It doesn't heal. Only the light heals. It doesn't heal, it ruins, and it hides. And if you're like me in that, then James Thurber has something for us. What all human beings should try to learn before they die, colon, what they are running from, what they are running to, and why. Here's the problem. Just hiding out in the shame is not the only thing we do. We're much more complicated than that. We toggle back and forth between hiding and shame and what I can only say is denying and shifting the blame. Adam starts it off, asks, have you eaten of the tree? And his response is, the woman you gave me. She gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate it. And then he goes to Eve and says, what have you done? And what she responds is, the serpent you gave me deceived me and I ate. This is the move from the shame to the blame, right? If it weren't so tragic, it would be comical. But it is cosmically tragic and not ultimately funny. It is soul-crushing and relationship-severing, and yet it is as easy as breathing for us. It was her fault. It was the serpent's fault. If only you understood my story, what position you put me in to make the decisions I had to make. Blame shifting can come in outright denial of, of the wrong that you've done. It can come in like a form of, of minimizing. But I think somewhere deep down inside, all of it comes from a place that says, God I think you're to blame. 
It's the woman you gave me. It's the serpent you put in the garden. There's a psychological term for it. It's called DARVO. Deny, attack, reverse victim, and offender order. If we'll admit it, we do blame God. But most of the time, on the operational level, we actually just blame one another or our past or some present circumstance or some relationship or some other issue, person, or event. It's just easier to, to, to get that guilt off and onto someone else. By the way, the instinct to get the guilt off and onto someone else is purely biblical. More on that later. It, it happens personally, interrelationally, and it happens systemically or culturally in our lore and our traditions. I'm going to give you one because I want to clarify because I've heard this too many times. But there's some instinct within certain churches that say Eve was to blame for the fall. And it's true, the action in Genesis 3 centers on Eve. But, but in many circles, like Eve gets the blame for the first sin. And then there are all sorts of ridiculous lures and myths that get applied to her, that, well, she's kind of just the weaker sex. Or the, you know, she's kind of emotional and she didn't get it. Or she wasn't cognitively aware enough. Or she's easily manipulated. Or that she's a vile temptress. All that is folly. It is not what the Bible says. After the eating, God comes to the man, Adam, and confronts Adam for what was done. He and Eve were together, united, right next to, each, to one another, created to be together. But he was silent. He did nothing. He abdicated all of his responsibilities. And Adam was the one that was told that the tree was forbidden at first. It got repeated later, but he got told that before she was even created. Adam's cowardly silence and manipulative passivity coupled with his own temptation, temptations to be like God, is what God, what Scripture calls as the fall. Now, don't get me wrong, Eve is as culpable, as culpable too. She sinned, no questions asked, for sure. But that Scripture orients the fall on Adam. For just as Adam in Adam all die, so also Christ, in Christ we will be made alive. End of that aside. Don't hear me wrong. When it comes to guilt and blame, there's plenty to go around. We're all a hot mess. We're all sinners, Adam and Eve, and all of us as their children. And I want to say another thing as an aside some of the shame that you've experienced has nothing to do with your guilt. There are people that have blamed you for things that are not your guilty, that you're not guilty of. And they use their power and heap on their neglect and abuse of you. I get this more than you know. And there's real damage in there. It is not just or good or holy to take responsibility for others' wrongs against you. But here's the liberating reality. That we are all victimized by sin, and we are all victimizers in sin. And so our job is to not deny either reality. We name our sin for what it is, 
no more and no less. Instead of running and hiding or shifting the blame, we run to our Lord Jesus. I'm asking you sometime this week to let the Spirit reveal to you where you hide in shame or move towards blame. Those are harrowing questions. But I'm asking you to not listen to anything I've said unless you listen to what I say next, which is God's response to our sin and guilt. There are so many places where it is unsafe to admit your guilt. So many places where people will manipulate that and be cruel to you in this. But the story of Genesis is that our Lord, our God, and our Savior in Jesus Christ is the safe place to bring it all. It is not about our reaction to the sin and the guilt that we have. It's about God's reactions. And so you've got to think about it. It's like it's a little easier when you know you're dealing with another feeble, fallen, broken person and you have to deal with your guilt with them. But what about the one who is all-powerful, all-holy, all-beautiful, who's never sinned nor had any temptation to sin? How do you deal with that? That's a great question. The more important question is, how does he respond? God's reaction to sin is that when we hide and we shift blame, he seeks and brings truth and love. He brings his presence, walking in the cool of the day. He doesn't walk away from us in our sin, he walks towards us. And that poetic language is meant there in the travesty of all that has been happening in the passage. The cool of the day is to to bring us closer and understand how beautiful and kind He is in the middle of it. The storm of our wrecked situation is met with the cool of the day of His presence. And then He asks the most tender question any parent could ask a child, where are you? Where are you? They're hiding in their guilt and the shame. They're locked and loaded, ready to blame. And God asks them, where are you? God's posture to our guilt is walking toward us in the cool of the day. And as the representative Adam of all now the fallen humanity, he does the very same thing. And he asks another tender question, who told you you were naked? Who told you of the shame? What are you believing about me or you or us or what's going on here? His presence shows up with tenderness and truth. Did you eat? What did you do? What have you done? God's not questioning the events. He's giving them a chance, a beautiful chance, a gracious opportunity to just say, I've been walking away because I did this wrong thing, and I don't know what to do. So he's just saying, come, to tell the truth, to repent, to tell all themselves. His presence in this passage is an invitation to the beautiful repentance that comes from him. Now, they opted for partial truth and a good bit of blame shifting, all that other stuff, but what's on display is his tenderness in it. 
Like, you guys, sometimes I've heard this before too, that, that, that God cannot look upon sin or be near sin because He's so holy. It's a misapplication of Habakkuk. The very first time sin happened, God moves towards it. God can handle it. The issue is not that God can't handle sin, it's that sin can't handle God. That's the issue. His, the whole story of the Bible is God entering into sinful human beings and bringing a redemption to bear because He loves them as they were sinners. That's the point. Not some legal code that exists in the cosmos outside of Him. It's deeply relational. And He walks towards us in the cool of the day amid all our folly and failure. This is the kindness of our King the beauty of our Creator. It's true that something must change, but it ain't God. He is for working it out, finding a solution. And though the consequences of sin are real, and they are real, it does not include His lack of energy and tenacity to save His people. That's why I brought up the Breaking Bad thing. Just do stuff and nothing happens. What does it all mean? What's the point? And so there's clear judgment that happens. And Eric will go into it a little bit further about the consequences of those sins. But, but, but he doesn't actually judge as harshly as he said he could. If you eat, you shall surely die. He does not kill them. In fact, he actually sets up a situation where that they will not be eternally condemned by eating of the tree further. And he guards, protects them as they walk forward in their new life. Broken, full of consequences, sure, but they will not be permanently set in a place where they'll be in their state of sin, hiding and shamed. And not just there, but in the future of the story, there is a son of Eve who comes, our Lord Jesus. And there was this first death in all of Scripture is the blood sacrifice of an animal to clothe them in their hiding and their nakedness. The shedding of the blood that would point to our Lord Jesus, who the scripture says takes away the sin of the world. And it's often misunderstood this expulsion, expulsion from Eden, as it was merely punishment because they drive them out. But it's driving them out against their own temptations of sin and the covering of their own guilt with, with shame and blame. So that one day, there would be one who would come and make all things new and return them to Eden. Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. If you look at your passages in your Bibles, it just dot, dot, dot. There's nothing else. It's like, that can't happen. They cannot live forever like this. 
And so the covenantal determination of the Father, the agreement of the second person of the Trinity, our Lord Jesus, the power of the Holy Spirit comes to make what was wrong right so that we could admit our guilt. And He, not through blame shifting, but through His kindness, would take on all our blame, all our shame, and all our guilt so that we may live free. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Father, Son, and Spirit, help us. In all our attempts of shame and hiding, help us. We pray in your name. Amen.